Welcome to the Everyday Innovator Podcast for product managers, leaders, and innovators. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping you become a product master. Listen and get ready for higher performance, for the doctor is in. Hi, this is Chad. The name of this podcast is changing to Product Mastery Now to better reflect our purpose of helping product managers become product masters, gaining practical knowledge, influence, and confidence so you'll create products customers love. In this episode, we discuss the obsessions of everyday innovators, and that is the language our guests uses to describe mindsets and actions that make us better innovators. You already know why this is important. Because better innovators and product managers are more likely to create products customers love and generate more value. Our guest knows a lot about this as he is the founder and CEO of five tech companies and a frequent keynote speaker. Interestingly, he started his career as a jazz guitarist. His name is Josh Linkner. And as we talk, remember we take notes for you. If you hear anything you want to go back to and review or have an easy way to share this information with a colleague, just go to theeverydayinnovator.com slash 331. And you'll find the details there along with a one-page action guide to help you put the information into action now. Now, let's talk with Josh. Josh, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Hey, truly a pleasure to be with you. Well, likewise. So I, I found out about the work that you're doing and then this new book that you have coming out, which, which should be out by now, by the time listeners hear this, and just kind of fell in love with the language. So I, I think you might very well be a kindred spirit in terms of how you talk about things. But I was first curious about this journey you have from prof- professional jazz guitarist to then founding five companies at this point, maybe more soon. What, what was that first transition like, right? When you go from professional musician to founder of a company? Well, it sounds like completely different universes, but ironically, it was actually somewhat similar. So I play jazz music, which is an improvised art form. You're always making stuff up as you go. And a lot of it isn't so much that you know you're going to play it right. It's more about course correcting when you inevitably screw something up. And it's messy and it's fluid and it's creative. And so I'd never taken a business class, but at age 20, I decided to start a tech company. And I know it sounds kind of goofy, but really it was pretty seamless in that it felt like I was still playing jazz, just using different instruments Hmm. because so many of the components are there, you know, the the passing of the baton of leadership from one to another, taking responsible risks, trying stuff out and tinkering. And and those, those jazz skills actually work really well in the business world. And I've been doing that for 30 years now. You must be gifted with some organizational skills as well to pull that off. You know, bad stereotype here, but have, having musician friends, not always the best people when it comes to organization. So <laughs> well, there's you, probably you must some, have got some skills there. There's some truth to that. But, you know, like in jazz, a lot of it isn't so much only being a good soloist, but it's being a good listener, yeah. knowing when to take a lead role and when to take a supportive role. And so I really, it was funny. It was just a great training ground for me. And by the way, I've made tons of mistakes as a business leader over the years. I certainly haven't done everything perfect, but there, there was surprising correlation. And by the way, I, I meet musicians all the time in the business world, and they tend to have some really well-developed skills that, that apply, yeah. I think, in today's dynamic environment. Yeah. And I think that improvisation point is, is really strong, right? And we are always tackling different problems and having to approach situations that in work that we weren't expecting, right? No plan goes unchanged once it, once it meets reality and being able to improvise is important. Well, while we're chatting about jazz, just real quickly, obviously you and I share a passion of innovation, specifically everyday innovation, which again, I feel like you're my brother from another mother with that. You know, jazz is kind of like that. So imagine that, that you're watching me playing in a jazz group in a crowded smoky bar somewhere. And, and, and it's not so much an individual act of creativity. You know, we think often of innovation as, as the lone wolf in a log cabin, you know, it's Ernest Hemingway, like writing his 
great American novel. But it's this collaborative thing that happens in jazz that I think works really well in teams also. So for example, mm-hmm. let's say I played something on guitar and it was like, okay, it was just, but it was something original. And then, then the bass player hears it and he takes what I did and builds on it and makes it better. Then the yeah. drummer hears a rhythm and picks that up. And all of a sudden the sax player rips a killer solo and standing ovation, everyone's cheering. So you might say, well, who, who created that? Who invented it? And it really was this co-creative process. It was the idea that led to the idea. It was this collaborative nature of, 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 of improvisation. And to me, that's what is such a good, powerful you know, reference when we get into the business world and, and building products, that same kind of co-creation process. The lone wolf innovator is a, is a myth, right? It doesn't exist. And we need those different perspectives and we need to build on each other and do that, you know, yes and sort of, of work with each other and helping each other's ideas better. Just so, so you know, the in middle school, long time ago, I was a trumpet player and was on the jazz band and I wasn't that great. But the best thing about being on a jazz band was we got to go play in lounges that we were uh, certainly not old enough to get into otherwise. And that was just fun. It was good fun. Okay, on on to some principles from your book here. And what I really like is, as I said, is that this language that you use. And so, for example, from your book, you share the obsessions of everyday innovators, very fitting for who we are here, the everyday innovators. And you say to fall in love with the problem, something we've talked about many times, and also fall seven times, stand eight, which a long-term listeners might know one of my favorite Japanese proverbs is fall down seven, get up eight. And all these things I just thought are, are, are so familiar to things we talk about. So I'm really hoping you can take us through some of these ideas. And I think those obsessions of everyday innovators is a great place for us to kind of walk through together. Can you, can you do that and, and lead us through what these obsessions are? Sure. Well, again, we, we both love this, this topic. And, and I really believe that human beings, just if you look at 7 billion people on the planet, there's, there's huge reservoirs of dormant creative capacity. You know, the mm-hmm. research is really clear that it's not one out of a handful of lucky creators. Like we all can be creative in our own ways. I play jazz guitar pretty well. You don't want to see me near a dance floor. Certainly can't draw at all, not even a stick figure. So again, we can all be creative in our own ways, but all of us can in fact be creative. So the book, I spent over a thousand hours on this one in terms of, of, of research and also interviews with CEOs and billionaires and celebrity entrepreneurs and, and amazing creators of all types and shapes. And what I learned through this research, as well as my own, you know, 30 plus years in business and, and playing jazz music for now 40 years, is that there are commonalities. There, there are sort of common mindsets, approaches, obsessions, if you will, of, of innovators. And the cool thing is that they don't require years of study. They don't require capital investment. These are principles that each of us can apply in our own lives toward the outcomes that matter most to us. And sometimes that's a business outcome. Sometimes it's a family or a personal or a community outcome. But, but I really believe that these principles can apply universally, universally to drive better outcomes of the things that we care about. So yeah, I'd be happy to walk you through any or all of them. I'm, I'm really excited about sharing them. That's great. Yeah, let's see what we have time for. I think the first one I saw in the book was indeed that fall in love with the problem. That sounds like a great place to start. So the, the thing is that many people think about, you know, the idea comes first. Like I've got an idea for X and really the best approach for innovation. I know folks listening in, in product development would agree that you're, you're better actually falling in love with the problem more so than the, the specific solution. In other words, innovators tend to bathe in the problem. They become more obsessed with the problem itself than the manner in which they solve it. In other words, they don't become fixated or tunnel vision on a particular solution. They're willing to adapt and course correct. So they, they kind of study the problem from all different angles and, and then they recognize recognize that they don't care, again, the manner in which it's solved. They care much more about solving it in the best possible way. And what that means is that, you know, along the path, you might be have, have thought there was one particular way to solve it. And then you may have to abandon that altogether to pursue something even better. So it is an interesting principle, fall in love with the problem, not the solution. 
Yeah, it's a key thing. And when you talked about the the solution part of that, and we shared this many times too, that as an engineer, that's my background, and some other product managers get into product management for engineering, from engineering as well. We like the solution, right? And it's easy to get enamored about that. And it's easy to start kind of feeling like this thing is my baby in some sense. And instead, we got to really just love that problem and know that we're creating value for a customer and understanding what their needs helps us down that path much better. So I, I love how you put put that into words, the fall in love with the problem. What's what's another obsession we can cover? Again, there, there's eight of them that we discovered. They're all kind of a little fun and surprising, hopefully in, in, in some regards, you know, not, not going in any particular order, but one of them is kind of cool is don't forget the dinner mint. Don't forget the dinner mint. And the principle is this, Chad, I'm sure you've been to a nice restaurant and they had a great meal and then someone, uh, hey, hey, Chad, here's something for you, compliments of the chef. And if you ordered it off the menu, it would be fine. But but the fact that it was this surprise and delight thing, it totally transforms your experience. So the principle is of a dinner mint in this regard is simply plussing up a piece of work product with no more than 5% more creative juice. So, so you're about to ship a piece. It could be writing code. It could be delivering a service or a product. Say, what's that little extra something that I could add to take this to a whole different level? And it doesn't have to be a physical thing like a you know actual dinner mint. You if if a client asks you to do eight pieces of research and you came back with ten, that would be a dinner mint. If you were to, so, supposed to deliver something on Tuesday afternoon, but you get there Monday morning, you you have a dinner mint there of time. So so the principle is just saying: is there a five percent or less upgrade that you could add to again stand out from the competitive set and to really make your your solution shine? Just one real quick example, because sometimes like when you put something in. in in, in, in the real world, it, it, it resonates more. So there's this woman named Melissa Tavs. And Melissa uh, came from the Italian old country. Her family was in the ice cream business. They made these beautiful gelatos and sorbets. So she came to the US, she went to New York, and she wanted to pers- pursue the ice cream business. But I, I can't even imagine a more competitive commoditized thing than being in the ice cream business in New York. Like, how do you possibly stand out? If you sell vanilla ice cream, so does everybody. So she started thinking, okay, could I add like a dinner mint? In other words, could I add a little extra something? So, so my mind really is differentiated. And she actually came up with a really cool idea, which took her a while to tinker with manufacturing wise, but it's, it's booze infused ice cream. So her brand is called Tipsy Scoop Boozy Ice Cream. And it comes in like these cool flavors, you know, chocolate, whiskey, salted caramel or lemon cello sorbet and, and, um, cake batter vodka martini. And, and if in, in the actual quantity, it's way less than 5%, but, but it actually totally transforms the customer experience. It's not just another bowl of vanilla ice cream. It's not a commodity. Now people don't care about the price. They care about this is something different and compelling. So in this commoditized competitive environment, she now has two wildly successful stores. She ships her ice cream all over the country, all 50 states. She offers cooking classes. She has a cookbook. She does corporate catering. And so she was able to, again, rise above the competitive set, stand out from the flock instead of blending in because she looked for that dinner mint, that one extra little something that would take her product to a whole different level. Right. And at value in a different way, attracting people to her instead of just kind of competing in that red ocean space, you know, that you can't stand out. As you're talking, the one that came to my mind, we've probably both ordered stuff from Sweetwater. I've ordered lots of musical items and recording equipment from Sweetwater before. And they include candy in every box, right? Whenever you get stuff. And apparently that was an accident in the beginning from right here, the story that someone was had candy at some fell into the box and the person got it and, and said, this is great. And it is that little tiny thing that just delights, you know, get, getting that thing that you ordered, that it's a special thing that makes the experience different. 
Yeah, just to, to build on that, because you're exactly right. It really does stand out. But there's, we were talking about New York City ice cream, but there's a really high-end yeah. uh, uh, restaurant in New York called uh, 11 Madison Park. Like, you know, five stars is one like restaurant of the galaxy, whatever. It's crazy award-winning, super expensive. But what they do is they actually have a team that they employ called Dreamweavers. And Dreamweavers, their job is not to deliver food, not to do any of the restaurant business. Their job is to add these like dinner mints. But in their case, it's not a mint, even though they're a restaurant. So here's an example. There was a family that was visiting from, from overseas with their young children. It was the first time their family had ever seen snow falling outside the window. So uh, an alert server you know, overhears this, tells the Dreamweavers in the back, and, and the, as the meal concludes, the family is, is, is escorted out to, to a waiting limousine. They're presented with four brand new sleds, and they're whisked off to Central Park for an evening of sledding. Now you might say, well, wh- what are you doing? That that's crazy. But you know, here we are talking about it, and those those that right. family will never forget it thirty years from now. Right. And so anyway, they, they have a philosophy. I just want to share, which I think is really cool. They call it the ninety five five doctrine. Hmm. So their per- principle is they're going to spend ninety five percent of their resources, time, money, energy, whatever, with Terminator like efficiency. They are super dialed in, like you know, really disciplined, such that they can spend their five percent, quote unquote, foolishly. And obviously it's not foolish at all. It's part of their overall strategy. And they attribute that extra 5%, that dinner mint, if you will, strategy as, as a key driver of their incredible success in a crowded space. But such a great example, right? T- taking that in that example, you shared about the sledding, you're really over the top extra mile to make that really special for them. And as you said, everyone's talking about it, right? So they're sharing the story. We're sharing the story. Uh, that's great. So good. Okay. So I lo- love this. And the dinner mint is a good analogy to help us remember that. Uh, how can we delight the customer? Another one you have, you, you say, start before you're ready. Tell us about this. So I think too often when we have opportunities out there, we, we wait. We, we wait too long and, and there's a problem with that. You know, first of all, the opportunity might change and, and we, we're so waiting for certainty. We overvalue certainty that, that sometimes we just lose our, our, our opportunity altogether. The, the notion here, start before you're ready, is not waiting for a directive, not waiting for permission, not waiting until you have a bulletproof game plan. It's just getting going. It's getting after something, knowing full well it's going to be messy, knowing that your first iterations are going to be sloppy and ineffective, but, but you're going to learn quickly, you're going to adapt, you're going to course correct, you're going to be agile, and you're actually better off getting started in a sloppy, messy way than waiting too long till it's perfect. Mm-hmm. And just one quick story there. There's a guy uh, I interviewed in the book, a guy named Matt Ishbia. And Matt is someone you probably never heard of because he's an everyday innovator, but he, he, took, he took over a small mortgage company. that was like employee number 12 and they were selling retail mortgages. And instead he flipped the whole thing around and started selling wholesale mortgages to, to arm other mortgage brokers. He built it to the second largest mortgage company in the country, the first largest in terms of wholesale mortgages. They just have a, had a public offering. And so Matt Ishbia from my hometown of Detroit, Michigan is now worth over $11 billion. And so I was talking to Matt, I was interviewing for the book, like, how cool is that? And he's this really creative guy. And he told me something fascinating about this principle. He said, you know, he said, let's say you and I both have an idea. And let's say you wait till it's perfect. You wait six months and you, you're in the lab and you, you, you get everything right and your eyes are dotted and T's crossed. He goes, but let's say I get going today. He goes, my first version is going to stink. My second one's going to stink, but now I got six months to catch up and I'm going to pivot and adapt and learn and grow. He goes, by the time I get to that point, I am way ahead of you taking your first shot. He goes, meanwhile, the opportunity may have shifted or the the market may have shifted. And if you wait that long, you might miss it altogether. I got after it. I got going. He goes, I would much rather get started quickly and sloppy than wait for perfection. And that's what this principle is all about. Start before you're ready. Yeah, so important because we need to get that experience and feedback, and that's how we get better, right? And I, I was part of a startup one time when the uh, the person leading the startup made the statement that, you know, it might take us two years to get our product out, but it's going to be better than anything out there. 
guess what? It never got out, right? It, we, we needed to get out there to get feedback to know if it was going to be better. Yeah, that old principle of, you know, measure twice, twice, count once. It really should be like measure 15 times, launch 15 tests all at once, do them really quickly, let go of the 13 that don't work at all, support the two that have some merit, you know, see which one's going to work better and then go and adapt real quick. You know, like, yep. like it's just an out of date metaphor. And I think in the modern world, it's all about getting after it and, and course correcting as you go. We'll talk more with Josh in just a moment. Being more effective and improving performance is what organizations need from their product managers. There are many pressures driving this, including creating better products in less time to beat your competitors. That is why I created the Rapid Product Mastery Experience, the RPM Experience. This is a nine-week journey, meeting virtually for 75 minutes a week. I take groups of product managers and organizations on this journey, building a broad foundation of product management knowledge getting everyone moving together while also improving collaboration and renewing a focus on the customer. Product managers feel empowered and more confident about their work and how they create value for customers and their organization. Many organizations have already benefited from the RPM experience, and you'll find them listed at theeverydayinnovator.com RPM. Now, the RPM experience is unique, unlike any other training you've seen. Because of collaboration, it creates buy-in that results in real change and improvement. Check it out at theeverydayinnovator.com slash RPM. Let's talk to understand if it will help you too. Now, back to more obsessions with Josh. That opens the door to another one of, of your obsessions because you mentioned testing. What about the test kitchen you talk about? So, man, we're talking a lot about food today. I'm sure I'm making you and everybody <laughs> else hungry, but uh, I got dinner coming up here soon. <laughs> too, too often, I think people think about innovation like this. Okay, it's a once a decade initiative. I'm going to bet my career and bet the company on it. It's wildly risky. It's like this moonshot and, and you don't really know for sure if it's going to work or not. And, and I know you and your listeners embrace this principle of, of, of rapid experimentation, which is what open a test kitchen is all about. So in the, the Shake Shack, wildly successful restaurant uh, chain in New York City, underneath their Greenwich Village store, there's this something called the Shake Shack Innovation Kitchen. And they have a little sign there, by the way, it says the, the bigger we get, the smaller we need to act, which I thought was kind of cool. But what the whole innovation kitchen is a test kitchen. So they've got all the ingredients and equipment and gear, and they're always tinkering. They're always exploring. Sometimes it's like trying a new recipe item out. So they run upstairs and give it to customers for free and get some immediate feedback. But other times they're, they're experimenting with things like, hey, how can I shave like two seconds off of a particular step in the preparation process? So they're experimenting certainly with, with product, but also with process and every marketing, technology, everything. In this controlled environment. And, and, and I think that too often people misunderstand innovation that they think it's like, you have to have this idea that's perfect and it should be perfect upon launch and it's just hatched with perfection. Or if not, you kind of suck and you, you shouldn't even try. And that's totally off. Again, I get back to, you know, thankfully there's now a couple of COVID uh, vaccines that didn't start with some guy running down the hall, like, Hey, Eureka, I got it. Go print a billion of them. I mean, that would be ridiculous. What happens is you go in a laboratory in a safe environment and you start running all kinds, you test your hypotheses, see what works, what doesn't, you double down, you experiment, you tinker. And that process of test kitchening it out of rapid experimentation drives the best, most efficient, least costly outcomes. And that's what, what this principle is all about. It's debunking the idea of, again, that, that lightning bolt from above that's, you know, you're imbued by the gods and all of a sudden you have this perfect idea that that's like riding a unicorn to work on a rainbow. It doesn't exist. It's much more effective to have this constant repetition, that, that, that experimentation mindset. 
And you are making me hungry because I've been at Shake Shack and, and the great place. But for I'm sure you'd agree with this for everyday innovators listening. If they're in an environment where they don't have that innovation kitchen yet, that innovation lab, that doesn't mean that they can't be testing, right? They, they can be scrappy. They can be talking to customers. They can be trying things out and getting feedback from them as they go. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up because a test kitchen does not have to be a physical environment. You don't need to have a you know multi-million dollar tricked out lab. There are many solo entrepreneurs and such that don't have those resources, but it's really more of a mindset. Mm-hmm. It's a mindset around constant experimentation, much more than the physical attributes of it. And, you know, by the way, there's a couple different ways to go after it. If we're just going to double click one one layer deeper, you know, one one model I, I call it the the farmer's market model, where you basically go to a farmer's market and let's say you don't know even know what you're going to cook for dinner that night. You're like, oh, this this tomato looks beautiful. Oh, look at these rats. You know, and you gather a bunch of stuff and you lay it all on your table and start experimenting and then maybe come up with a dish. And that's a great model. It's very effective. The other model that I think is also kind of cool, though, is that have you ever seen that TV show Chopped Mm -hmm. where they give people challenges and they're weird? Like, okay, can you use micro basil and licorice and bubble gum and, you know, make something out of it? And so sometimes instead of having all the the, the things at your disposal, sometimes actually a limited and even a weird set of of ingredients, so to speak, can come together in a novel way when instead of having access again to everything, you you actually limit it to to a a select few. So neither is right or wrong. They're, They're just two different approaches. But I think the more comfortable we get, whether it's in a physical or in a proverbial test kitchen, the better our innovations, our, our innovation outcomes are, and actually the less waste that we end up along the way. That's a great point. It's interesting how constraints actually fuel innovation, and, and we work better within some constraints. Yeah, which, funny enough, that leads to another principle. Yeah. I call this one, use every drop of toothpaste which is exactly around constraints. It's about being effective with the resources that you have rather than bemoaning the ones that you lack. And and the fun example of that, if we're back to music for a second, I was studying music in, in, in college and I, I had a professor that would force me to remove strings from the instrument. So this guy would make me take off one, two, sometimes three strings from the guitar. And you figure, okay, if your resources are cut in half, your creativity is going to tank. But but a surprising and kind of counterintuitive thing happened. When, when those strings were off, I could no longer rely on the patterns that I knew. I was forced to kind of problem solve in a, in a really different way. And as a result, actually, my creativity skyrocketed. So our instinct is that to be innovative, we need more. I need more money. I need more time. I need more bandwidth. I need more computing power. I need more team members. But actually, the opposite is often true. Those, those resource-constrained environments can actually be a catalyst for creativity. Mm-hmm. And I like to joke around that you know, if, if, if the amount of external resources that you had equaled the amount of creativity your organization has, the federal government would be the most creative organization on the planet and startups would be the least. And of course, we know the exact opposite is true. So I was worrying about that because I, I saw your every drop of toothpaste, use every drop of toothpaste, didn't know what that one was about. So it's, it's the issue of constraints are actually helpful and they, they help us be better innovators. And the example of your guitar teacher, that's just amazing, right? Forcing yourself to do with less. Okay. What about another one for us here? You have one called a reach for weird you know, in, in our busy lives, we tend to make decisions based on the tried and true. You know, we gravitate toward historical reference points, but that isn't always the most effective approach. You know, when you're trying to solve a problem or seize an opportunity, we very quickly narrow the field of choice. You go from unlimited possible concepts to a very short list. It's like A, B, and C. And the problem, again, is those A, B, and C ideas, those are the obvious ones. My challenge to people with great respect is with this principle, reach for weird, is challenging yourself to say, okay, before we choose A, B, and C, is there a D? Is there an E? Or I like to say, is there an option X, which is that bizarre, unexpected, unorthodox approach that can make all the difference in the world? 
I mean, a couple of rapid fire examples for you is when you, cause, cause when you reach for weird, just great stuff happens. There's a, um, a little seaside village in Iceland and they were facing a challenge that, that the incidents involving pedestrians and motorcycle and motorists the accidents had been up like 41% over the last decade. So what are the obvious approaches? Your A, B and C choices. Uh, install more traffic lights, have more police officers on duty, issue more fines, or the reach for weird approach. They painted the crosswalk where you cross the street as an optical illusion so that it looked like there were slabs of concrete floating in the air. And as you drive up, it looks like these things are getting higher. So it looks like you're going to barrel through three feet of these things floating in the air. And what happened? Significantly reduced traffic incidents dramatically, very low cost. And by the way, people get to take some great selfies along the way. So sometimes those weird approaches are the, the, the ones that are magic. Just one other quick approach. So have you ever gone to the grocery store, Chad, and, and, and you're, you can't decide, should you get the yellow bananas or the green ones? Huh. I mean, think about, it. you know, the yellow bananas today, they're great. Four days later, the rest of the bunch is all mushy. You buy the green bananas. Yeah, you got to wait like a week and a half for a decent banana. So now imagine that you and I are in, in the banana business. You might shrug your shoulders. Well, what am I going to do? That's just how bananas are. It's a commodity. I can't do anything about it. Well, one company in, in Korea decided to reach for weird and they organized, they, they packaged their bananas instead of on a, on, on a bunch, they organized them one by one by ripeness. So you get this little package. It's a banana day. So seven bananas going from bright yellow to bright green. And so as the days go on, each day you wake up and like the next banana is perfectly ripe just for you. Same bananas, different approach mm-hmm. to market. They took a weird approach. And first of all, they're crushing the competition in terms of sales volume. Second of all, they're charging three times per ounce of banana compared to the competitive set. So those weird oddball approaches can actually really drive the economic outcomes that we see. I would buy those bananas, right? Because you end up wasting bananas if you get the ones that are good today. That's excellent. Really good examples. Reach for weird and maybe reframe the problem a little bit bigger, explore alternatives a little bit more and think about how we can solve this differently. Yeah, just one, too, that comes, they all kind of interconnect, too, because it doesn't need necessarily throwing more money at a problem. Just one other weird example, Children's Hospital, University of Pittsburgh. You say, well, who are their customers? Unfortunately, they're sick kids and their families. So, so the leaders of the hospital, they wanted to create a better experience for those customers. And the obvious approach, A, B, or C approach would be like softer pillows. But the weird approach, they dressed up the window washers like superheroes. So as the window washers, which had to clean the windows anyway, like no productivity was lost, but now they're dressed up like Spider-Man and Superman and Batman. And I'll tell you what, it's a total game changer. It takes the attention away from the medical care for those kids. They look forward to it for days. It makes them forget about the procedures that they're undergoing. And it's just a total, again, it's a game changer. And it it wasn't an expensive solution. It was just a less obvious. It was a weird solution that carried the day. That's kind of like your dinner mint, right? It's this little extra thing we can do that changes the experience. And you mentioned Children's Hospital. The the MRI example for uh, children is amazing too, right? How do you make an MRI experience better for kids? Well, maybe you turn it into a submarine and you put a story with it and you get the kids involved in the story. And it's uh, now something they're eager about doing as opposed to maybe very apprehensive about Great examples. Thank you so much for sharing those examples, too. I think we've got through most of these these uh, obsessions of the everyday innovators, except for the one I queued up before, which was your fall seven times stand eight. Yeah, you know, it's really unfortunate that most of us have been taught that, you know, failure is a four-letter word and, you know, every mistake is fatal and all this stuff. And I think it's important that we celebrate and understand the, the role that failures play in the creative and innovative process. You know, it's not, you, you really can't have bold breaking innovation on a regular basis unless you're willing to have some failures. In other words, the optimal failure rate of experiments is not zero. 
In fact, that's a terrible failure rate because it means you're not pushing the boundaries enough. And so what this, this principle, fall seven, stand eight is all about, it's not just dogged persistence. It's not just, you know, getting back up and going, going, going. It's every time understanding, okay, part of life, I hit an obstacle. I had, I had some adversity. What can I learn from it? What can I tweak or adapt and go forward accordingly? And uh, it's funny, one of the uh, stories that I cover in that chapter, there's a museum built by an organizational psychologist in Sweden called the Museum of Failure. And it really celebrates the role of failure. There's, it's amazing. Let's go on a little tour. So you, you go into the Museum of Failure, and, and the first one of the things you see, you and I probably drink vitamin-flavored water, you know, flavor-enhanced water. So some, someone said, hey, let's come up with the same one for dogs and cats. So they had like thirsty dog and thirsty cat. It's like disgusting brown liquid. They came in like tangy beef flavor and crispy fish flavor. And it's a surprise to no one other than, than the inventor that it was not a commercial success. Another one of my favorites at the Museum of Failure, they have the Euro Club. The Euro club is the golf club for the golfer that just can't hold it for nine holes. So it's a urinal disguised as a golf club, fits conveniently in your golf bag, comes with a, pla- a little privacy towel so no one sees what your business is out on the golf course. And in a strange twist of fate, even though it wasn't a successful product, it's still available today as a gag gift. So the reason I bring all this up, Chad, is like you and I can laugh at this and, and we don't vilify these people. We think good for them for trying and we, we, we approach it with compassion. So why don't we give ourselves that same compassion when we have the inevitable stumble? Mm-hmm. And I think it's just so important that we, we give ourselves permission that it's okay, that it's screwing something up shouldn't be a scarlet letter. Maybe instead it should be a badge of honor. And let's fall seven times, learn from it, grow from it, pivot, adapt, and, and proceed with eight. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a, this whole fail fast mentality, right? That we hear out of Google and other places that start in Silicon Valley. A lot of people kind of, they push against that notion, like failure is bad, right? But if you just reframe it as learning, if you're doing innovation, you're doing something new, how are you supposed to know that right off the bat, right? It's something new. So you're learning along the way as you're figuring out what that innovation is. It's so important. I mean, one of the things I really like, uh, you know, kind of focus on this book, Big Little Breakthroughs, is the notion of da- daily habits. Lots of high, high velocity, high volume of little teeny creative acts that are safe and not risky and all that. But it, not only do you enjoy results from them, you're building the skill. And I always like to say, you know, we think about a creative genius like Da Vinci. You know, he paints the Mona Lisa, but, but that wasn't his first painting. First, Da Vinci had to learn to paint and he had to paint a bunch of junk and he had to make a bunch of mistakes and he had to learn to do bad paintings before you could come to a good one. So why do we think that our role as a creator, a new creator should be to come up instantly? Our first at bat is like the Mona Lisa. That's crazy. Let's instead learn to paint, love to paint, learn to make a bunch of mistakes. And over time with enough velocity, enough volume, the greatness will emerge. There is one more obsession we have not covered, and we're going to leave that there. So people have to find uh, get your book to find out more about this. But I also mentioned this is only one section of your book. There's a lot of other gold in there about how can you practically go about being a better innovator, bringing products that actually delight customers and satisfy them. So appreciate those insights. Before we talk more about where people can get your book, we love innovation quotes around here. What did you bring for us? And, and if you will, share what that means to you. So I actually brought two. You asked me to bring one, but I, I had to over-deliver it. So, you know, I said, now you're you and I want to be on your show. But one of them I like is from a guy named General Eric Shinseki, Shinseki. And it basically says this, if you don't like change, you're going to like irrelevance even less. And I thought that was such a cool thing because, you know, we've been taught, hey, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But man, that's terrible advice. I, I think we owe it to ourselves to do the opposite. You know, why wait till something's totally broken? You know, let's, let's be that source of, of proactive disruption rather than having it thrust upon us. And uh, so, so that was one that I just thought was, was really cool. And, and just following right along, same basic principle is that, you know, John Cage was, a, was an innovator and said, you know, I, I don't know why you're scared of, of, of new ideas. I'm more scared of the old ones, which again, to me, just re- I write in the book, this principle called the Frogger principle. Maybe you'll remember that video game Frogger. 
and your goal as a little frog is you got to like, you know, cross the river, but you can't swim. So you have to jump on the back of a lily pad and an alligator and a, and a moving log. But the thing is those solid surfaces are moving. And if you just stand still, you fall into the raging river and die. And I just frankly think that we're living in a giant game of frogger. In other words, if you leap to a point of success and you're comfortable, you know, what's going to happen? You're going to fall in the river and die because the world is changing so rapidly. So I think our responsibility as innovators is to sort of leap like that little frog does from one point to the next to the next and not get too comfortable in any one particular position. I love those quotes and how you tie them into all the discussion too, right? Taking action, getting out there, doing the experiments, not standing still is important for us as everyday innovators. For people that want to find out first about your book and also about the work you do, where can you point us to? How can we make that happen? You can find everything you'd be curious about at biglittlebreakthroughs.com. And, you know, look, if you want to buy the book, awesome, but but there's tons and tons of free resources. There's a free creativity assessment. It's kind of like jumping on the scale and seeing how you weigh in at the moment. And it might give you some pointers on what areas you could focus on. There's downloadable worksheets and tools, and there's all kinds of goodies. So check it out, biglittlebreakthroughs.com. And if I can be helpful in any way, of course, you can find all about me there. Also, just on social, my social handle is just my name on all social channels, channels at Josh Linkner, and you're good to go. Excellent. Josh, thank you so much for your time, for the insights, the obsessions of everyday innovators, which is most appropriate for this podcast. Awesome. Thank you. And thanks for all the great work you do. I'm a big fan of the show. So appreciate the privilege of being with you today. Thanks again for listening to the podcast that will soon be known as Product Mastery Now, where product leaders and managers become product masters, gaining practical knowledge, influence, and confidence. So you'll create products customers love. Find all the details of our discussion at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 331 including the helpful one-page action guide. Keep innovating. Thank you for listening to The Everyday Innovator, which teaches product managers to become product masters. For more resources, please visit theeverydayinnovator.com.